My name is Dimitri, and I'm a productivity and minimalism enthusiast. I'm Chance. I'm a philosophy and ethics enthusiast. And you're listening to the Rise Productive Podcast. The show where productivity meets philosophy. And what it means to build a better life. Enjoy the show. What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to the Rise Productive Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how we read too many books, we're essentially big, dumb nerds, and how food can impact you in ways that you never even thought about. How we can live a a food-oriented life and um, perhaps a more productive life when we center our life around food. We're going to be talking about Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma. Critically what are acclaimed. you even talking about? Food can't make you productive. What? What? It could. Maybe. Dimitri, how are you doing today? You know, based on the way I sound, it might be like, oh, maybe he's being over the top weird because he's not in a great mood. To be honest, kind of the opposite. I've been in a good mood since about Thanksgiving, uh, and that role has continued in my life, and I've just been, I've been very, very vibey, you know? I'm like, you know what? Life's good. I have things I need in life, and any negatives, eh. It's like, you know, it's like all negative things happen on a, on a weekly basis. We just got to be grateful for what's good. I definitely feel that. I feel that you've had a an immense positive aura since the break, since our, uh, it almost started when we started talking about goals for next year and we started reflecting back on this past year, I think that, uh, that kind of sprang board a lot of positive feelings about like, all right, like we've got the ball rolling. Like a lot of good things are happening. Like, let's just keep building. Let's just stay in that flow state. It's been exciting to see. Yeah. There was a big thing the other day when, uh, so I was writing a newsletter and that just every newsletter I write, I feel like at this point, it's just like a rah, rah for people and myself recently, but I wrote a newsletter about how the goalpost shifts and basically if I had taken a look at what my goals were when I set out like a rebrand in June, I would have been like, dude, if you're hitting those numbers by the end of the year, that's nuts. You got to just, you got to be the happiest man in the world. And then from an objective point of view, I thought about that the other day and was like, damn, I really am bending over the goals that I made. Like I I bent over the goals that I made in the middle of the year by like October. So I got to just be grateful at all times. Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, you were blowing every goal you had out of the water. We're out of the dip. The channel is growing like crazy. I mean, how many subscribers are you at now? Uh, 3670. So 4K by the end of the year, pretty handedly. Pretty handedly. It's a bit exciting. Every time I get on YouTube, the first thing I do is see how many subscribers you're at. Funny, I do the same thing. One of those things is healthy <laughs> for... Uh, one of those things is not unhealthy. And uh, <laughs> it's not my thing. I was going to say, not healthy in either case, but not unhealthy in one <laughs> case for certain. How you been doing? It's been good. Um, Kind of similar vibe. It's been... We're seriously busy since um Thanksgiving break, as as is the nature of finals week and such, as well as uh some other outside commitments, getting some other things done. But we're just putting up a lot of things on the to do list and we're checking them off one at a time. It's been um it's been rewarding. It's always daunting to see the list and then once you finish it, you're like, Oh, it wasn't that bad. Just another day. So and I've been getting up early, which I've been really happy about. Um we've also been doing the um screen time challenge downing our screen time significantly which has definitely been making me feel better and certainly feeling more productive so it's all been good all good things that's dope i actually i have a question for you about about the uh the old finals thing but first and foremost uh just want to let anyone everyone in on a secret that we are like chance said doing a uh 30 day challenge of lowering our screen time to two hours or less a day so far we have been doing pretty solid i think on both of our ends success is inevitable i think if we keep up what we did in the first week i think we're going to be fine uh but i will say the first day i kind of hated you i was like you know what i'm mad this like challenge is <laughs> the best and worst thing of all time because like you just want to 
you just want to look at your damn phone when you're when you're on as many hours as I was on beforehand. And even a lot of it was just quote unquote being productive, going on Notion, checking my Google Calendar and whatnot. But I was just genuinely like, oh my God, this shit two hours? What is this stupid arbitrary number he put? And then I'm like, <laughs> Apple inflates its screen time. It's not how long I've been actually on the phone. And uh it's pretty funny how how different it's felt. But I don't want to give too much away of that. I actually have a question for you about uh finals week. We made a video <laughs> a while back or a podcast a while back about virtue signaling uh like difficulty and i think let me get the actual title of this one because I, I do want to ask you specifically what your thoughts are on this since you've kind of been through a few productivity books since um i made it called we we made it and it was called finals week slash why do people glorify their struggle we made this and mm-hmm. uh, i was published on may 19th which means it was recorded at minimum on like may 12th so you going into another finals week how are you feeling with this new type of life that you lead organizationally so much better it's yes. it, i think the biggest thing is you have a toolkit of course i'm i've catered my lifestyle in significant ways from what i was doing last year in terms of just making a more productive lifestyle but i also have these techniques and tools to use at my disposal. It's like, well, if I want, I can, like, I, I know I can get up early and like crank out two hours, which is not even something that I'd considered before. It would just be, oh, I'll like have to stay up late and end up putting in lower quality work. Um, I don't know. I'll have to run around with a sticky note or an agenda, like something barbaric in order to remember all the tasks <laughs> I have to do rather than just having them automatically populate onto my daily planner. Um, being able to schedule out how long I'm going to have a deep work session and know how to maximize my um, my cognitive abilities, my cognitive energy, um, just stuff like that. It's been, it's been smooth. Of course, it's, it's a challenge and it's never self-help and productivity. I think people have this idea that if you get to the, if you surmount like, all these lessons to be learned and you become some kind of like self-help guru that like life just gets easy. And it's not true. Like stuff is still hard, but you get it done and you, you just succeed. There's a quote that I really like, uh, actually that Ali Abdul brought up and I'm forgetting where he was quoting it from, to be frank, consist or the, the key to success is literally just being consistent at for 10 years, like at anything. The key to success is just being consistent for like 10 years. And I feel like this kind of framework of, of life just allows for that to happen with less interruptions, right? So success is a quicker thing for people when they're consistent. So that's kind of what this stuff does. I don't, I maybe I feel a little bit happier in general than I did before as well, but it doesn't omit all negative emotions and situations. Exactly. I, I do like thinking about it as a, a compounding effect because my skills are sharpening. I'm certainly getting a lot better at things and making things more efficient, but I'm not perfect. There's still going to be some, some bumps in the road, some trials and tribulations, but um, it's been good. I'm not too worried about this finals week. Stress good. levels are low. Thank God. Good to hear. Uh, and then one last thing is just a note for the podcast. Uh, hope you guys like the new logo. It's uh Woo. Something I whipped out the other day as an epiphany post-run. I was like, I need to make this a thing. I think that's a good color scheme for our brand. Thoughts? No, I like that. It it matches the vibe of the videos. It's the blue and then the black-white spectrum shade of gray. Um, yeah. No, I, I, that's nice. Yeah. I personally like blue. There are people in my life that aren't big blue fans, but I've been a blue fan for life, so I'm a diehard. Diehard blue. That's good to hear. And then one last thing that you don't know, but I just started doing it this morning. Uh, So I'm going to really try to stop biting my nails. And I've been reading a lot of meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And I realize actually at work what I've been doing a lot when I'm in like really focused stuff too is I'm like fidgeting with my AirPods case and just like moving it around. And what I forgot is, uh, are you familiar with the serenity prayer? No, I'm not. It is God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, change the things I can change, change the things I or wait, sorry. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, 
courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And this is a, I believe in the 1920s or 1930s, this was a phrase made in um, Christianity. It was like a modern mm-hmm. Christian made this. However, basically this is three out of the four pillars of stoicism. And <laughs> I wanted to, I realized I saw like a something from Ryan Holiday where he mentioned the Memento Mori coin. And I'm like, you know, it'd be really good having the Memento Mori coin and fidgeting it with it as a replacement to biting my nails. And then I realized I had a serenity prayer coin which mixes the fact that i do believe in our lord and savior jesus christ and um saying that made it sound weird and uh i like stoicism so it's kind of both so i'm gonna try fidgeting with this instead of biting my nails from now on as a as a focusing on what i can control reminder and as a it's mildly grimy like just in general like touching metal so like who wants to bite their nails after that so (laughs) That's, that's cool, man. You added your own little personal spin to that. And it also, um, it shows how stoicism leaves room for your own vision of God, which is really cool. And you it got three pillars in there. It is required. No right. stoicism without gods. Anyways, let's get into the book. Yeah, you ready to talk about some omnivores dilemma? I have a dilemma. I'm an omnivore and I have a dilemma. You are an herbivore, so I don't even know why we're talking about this dang book. <laughs> We're talking about this book because mostly I pitched this to Dimitri. I um I read the book um what was it this summer I believe and um yeah. it just immensely changed the ways that I thought about how I want to lead my life. I am already a vegetarian, aspiring vegan. I'm like kind of slowly moving down that scale. I gotta I gotta get butter out of my life. She's a tough gal to shake, but um. Mm. Everything else is pretty much gone, um, at least on the regular day-to-day. But I read this book, and it really taught me that when we're talking about being intentional people with our lives, which the, the, I think has kind of become the, the label of this podcast. It's either the, the yep. enthusiasts or the intentionalists, <laughs> maybe some combination of both. But if we want to lead an intentional life, we have to pay attention to this fundamental part of living, which is eating. And so I just want to talk about a few takeaways I got from the book. Um, This is generally a solid book. And I do think that since I've been following some of these practices, I have been feeling better about myself, feeling more energetic. So not just trying to push a certain agenda here, but um, bring some of the facts as well. So you want to get into the uh, the four types of food chains that uh, you noted here? I do. I believe it was very interesting that in this book he broke down that there are, you know, it's like we talk about the food chain, right? But from an omnivore's perspective, there are four different kinds. It was the industrial food chain, which is like your your basic sort of just general food chain uh, regarding, you know, industrial food, uh, big farms, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the industrial organic food chain, which is this more broad form of organic food. So, I mean, we talk about organic food at, at uh most supermarkets is what we're talking about and then true organic food would be more from farm to table uh, like literally farm to table like we actually have um, a farmer that we know uh, <laughs> that we buy a cow a quarter of a, a half of a cow from each year and put the meat in the freezer and it's um kind of life-changing in that regard uh, but enough on that the last one is the hunter-gatherer food chain which would be if you were to be the one that physically did the whole the whole shtick of getting your mm-hmm. food into your mouth from either the wild or from a farm. So, see what's what I think was uh, a really subtle point that you made here, but it was it was good. Is that um when you said like literally farm to table, the only reason you have to say that is because we have this issue with the industrial organic yes. food chain. It's basically this market where it's like I think of this as like the USDA organic it's like okay like if um that's horse you know what yeah it's like it's free range if it has like um a door that it can walk outside of and maybe walk around but it doesn't like the chicken will never actually use that or it's like oh we fed it grass instead of corn like something is absolutely garbage like that so yeah that was um that was big and i think now that becomes it's it's cool how that seems to be almost common knowledge for a lot of people now. But at the time, this was groundbreaking stuff when he was doing his research. Yeah, I think 
it's crazy how different people used to think about food and how recently a lot of good different books and movies and documentaries have really brought up some great points. So like I watched Super Size Me 2 about a year ago and that actually opened my eyes a lot to a lot of the problems with the food industry in general. Um, so Super Size Me 2 is essentially where the same guy who did Super Size Me, uh, I'm going to pull <laughs> up his name out of just wanting to acknowledge it because he's a really good filmmaker. Uh, Super Size Me um, director, what that is, Morgan Spurlock. Yep. So Morgan Spurlock basically goes back and says, I want to make a fast food chain and I want to figure out how to make like a chicken, like a fast food chain where essentially he goes and he finds all these different ways that, that these, these manufacturers take these different words and these farmers take these different words and these packagers take these different words like free range and all natural and take those and know that they're buzzwords that can be used towards the consumer but mean nothing because that the the usda doesn't really have any regulatory stuff on it and as you alluded to in the documentary actually he gave a little bit of space outside of his big hen house <laughs> and they were able to walk outside if they so chose for a certain time of the day and that was considered free range the funny thing mm-hmm. is as he recorded and showcased they would not walk out I mean, they'd maybe sometimes go out there, but they were just so fat and like, you know, juiced up uh, because he got the specific type of chickens that have been genetically modified to get the most amount of meat out of. And uh, it was a very interesting take on everything because at the end of it, he he'd made a a very short period of time at a restaurant in Ohio, actually. I don't know if you know this, where he had a few locations or just one. I'm blanking on it, but basically they were overtly obvious and pointing out how misleading the terminology was and how it's like farm to table as in this came from like this, this like factory farm that I got set up and like this, we actually do have a farmer. His name is this, but also our chickens are like genetically modified. Like they just pointed out everything and it was overtly honest. And it was like, we, Jesus. we put things like health halos, like the, uh, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with the term health halo, I think I can infer it's when you put something like, oh, look, it's healthy because it has a bunch of different veggies on this chicken yep. sandwich. And it's a <laughs> halo to make you like not acknowledge the fact that it's like 1200 calories. Uh, so really, really groundbreaking stuff. And I'm, I'm glad this book's out. And I'm glad a lot of different things are pointing out problems with the food industry that, to be honest, were underreported on. If I had to put a timeline on it, probably like mid 90s to like mid 2010s. And what's crazy is that as much information as there is about it, there's still this sense of denial. It's like, oh no, like what these people were doing was bad, but like now we've got to figure it out. Like now when they no. say free range or all natural, like it's better. It almost, it it almost is nihilistic where it's just like, oh, who cares? Like all these labelings are bad. So why don't I just buy like the, the cheapest, crappiest eggs that are factory farm because it doesn't make a difference. All these chickens are going to suffer anyway. So I did think that was a um interesting part of the book. The next huge part of the book for me that was um quite interesting. He it talks extensively about the corn industry, which is basically the backbone of American agriculture. And for a long time, like as a kid, I would always <laughs> I'd always drive through cornfields and think, I, I don't like corn. I hate corn. Like where <laughs> where are people eating all of this corn? And then I don't know why I never thought about this, but corn is in everything like high fructose corn syrup. It's a stupid epiphany, but I had it reading this book. I was like, holy <laughs> crap, xanthium gum. Like there's the like hundreds lining of, of cucumbers, hundreds of things. Yeah. The lining of a cucumber, everything. And there's like, it, it's just in everything. Like when I'm eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I have corn in that sandwich. If I'm drinking pop, there's corn in there. I'm drinking juice. There's most likely some kind of corn. It's like this crap is everywhere. And so when you talk about living an intentional life, I think one thing thing for me is moving away from that monoculture consumerism where we're only eating things that are made out of corn because it's just, that's just like the cash crop. It's in everything that, 
would be considered unhealthy, basically. Yeah, and what's also interesting is the fact uh, that it's actually in the it doesn't ever lead even leave the food chain at all so when we look at the different four food chains it's all over the industrial food chain as well so the industrial food chain has a has a big problem from what i'm familiar with as well as that the majority of these animals are being fed corn meal when they're not supposed to be Uh, i mean that's just not a part of their diet and um funny enough i don't know if you're familiar with this i'm sure you are did you know that the terminology around non-GMO and like non-genetically, uh, non-genetically modified and non-like just affected animals is is completely misconstrued because the way that it works is if you feed them something that has these these different, and I don't even know what to call them, like they just, it's they're feeding them something that's not natural, right? If you feed yeah. them something that's like that, rather than injecting them with that, it's technically non-GMO. Yeah, it's technically all natural. That's even though, so stupid. Yeah, the, no like, I'm sorry, like, what are you going to snort? So, so if I got them to snort coke instead of, like, <laughs> shooting them up with meth, it's fine. They're not on drugs. Exactly. And that is the, 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 that's the beauty of it. And even aside from steroids, it's not natural for any livestock to be eating corn. They're made to eat grass. And because we've gotten ourselves into this terrible trade-off where animals eat all of our grass and then we have no more grass all we have is dead animals yeah to eat we um we have to resort to eating corn because we've been the government essentially has um bolstered this sector of the economy so strongly that we have surpluses of corn and say let's not just feed it to the people let's feed it to the animals that then we can we can feed to the people and so i thought it was really interesting at this part where poland he goes to um a mcdonald's and he basically just gets like a corn meal like his burger huh. was a was a hamburger that had corn and um, the fries i think the oil or something had to do had some corn he ordered a soda obviously high fructose corn syrup there's some corn in there and his kid <laughs> got like chicken nuggets and same thing the chicken, the chicken nuggets fed are corn. required the, the the entire the entire makeup of a chicken nugget, as I learned from this book, is is predicated on corn. Yeah, because corn is used as um, I don't know, almost like a binding agent for a lot of different chemicals. Yes. And so it was just able to, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Like this, talk about inorganic. The most inorganic thing is this chicken nugget. It just needs corn to exist. It's um, <laughs> absolutely crazy. But um, yeah, that part blew my mind. So that was my, my first of the four takeaways from this book is to eat less corn. And the, um, the second takeaway for me is to, to eat seasonally, eat locally, which is another idea that I don't think was big at the time and still probably doesn't get enough attention even today. Like um, there's one story where he's interviewing a, um, a lettuce company out in California and they were talking about the terrible trade-off of everyone in the nation eating lettuce year-round. Like that's not a natural thing that occurs because in most most ecosystems, lettuce just doesn't grow. And so you have to ship it all the way from California to let's say Chicago. I think they said on the average it is fifty-nine calories of fossil fuels burned per calorie of lettuce that's consumed my god and not to mention like lettuce is not a calorically dense food to be eating like you eat a slice of lettuce and it's like that that was nothing (laughs) yeah it's like okay thanks bud yeah exactly so it's like not only are we spending our time on foods that just aren't really valuable in terms of like like any kind of like greens like that spinach kale like they're good for you but they're not calorically dense in any way we're taking these things and shipping them across the country and making a terrible trade-off what's interesting that i find in this whole thing is that if you look at the four types of food chains just one more time on this from the top down top being industrial and bottom being hunter gatherer Mm -hmm. the time so the overall value whether that being time it meaning time and money 
the ratio is less and less in the consumer's favor, favor the farther you go down this chain. But it's better for you which is, and more oh, moral, mm-hmm. which is just awful. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's less convenient. He talks about this in, um, Michael, he, he has another book out there called Cooking. And it's really interesting what he gets to in there because he talks about um, how when, um, I believe it's like the second feminist wave where women okay. started going into work around um, post-World War II where women are starting to move away from the household position and they're getting jobs. He mm-hmm. says that the big food industries had to find a way to fill that gap where we no longer have the stay-at-home mom who's cooking meals for the the breadwinner and the kids every night. It's now, can we capitalize on this void by making food convenient for people? And this is the, the birth of fast food and TV dinner foods and quick meals like that is it's so convenient to lean into the industrial food chain. But of course, it's just going to end up being terrible for you. So I thought that was really interesting, like how that kind of came into birth. Well, I think it's interesting that as women go into the workforce and as technology improves, and we talked about this in the uh, our automations ethical. I mean, this is a perfect example about how the goalposts, goalposts have just shifted consistently and that even though we do have more time theoretically, the distractions have increased and or the expectations of people have increased. So we're getting to a point just consistently where, I mean, the consumer is put in a negative spot. So in the industry of food in this case took advantage of it. And it's just odd, you know, to, my whole point here is that I don't know what third wave feminism is. You might have to inform me if I'm not, if I'm not incorrect, the four waves are first wave was suffrage, right? Second wave mm-hmm. was what you just referenced, post-World War II. Third, I would have to guess, is around the post-civil rights era. And fourth is what we're currently in, if I'm ever wrong. I know we're in the fourth. I, I don't know what the I, third one is. I don't know why that's so hard for me. The third is what I always forget, too. Uh, but regardless, it. isn't it interesting to you how we were clearly getting to a better spot economically in that point, And we're having women, they are the sole one who was able to make food to be frank during that time period so that they're just the industry of food took advantage of it and it's so odd considering how we did make technological advances during that time we obviously have improvements in the the brevity of being able to cook something just in general easier than before you know you you had stoves you had modern stuff even right after that second wave movement you're talking into the 70s whatever 80s we're having um, Mm. microwaves be a part of things it's just it's odd it's odd that like this these these industries whether it be social media now or food then and now just take advantage of and they, they use these goalpost shifts to their advantage and never really to the benefit of the consumer yeah exactly i actually have a, a quick question for you i this is probably why i don't have the best um the best um opinions about gary v but i remember watching one of his videos once and he says and he's like, if you're in your 20s, like, listen to this. Like, as he starts every video. And he's like, you you could live off McDonald's for five years. You could work really hard, live with your parents in their basement, eat McDonald's and save money, and just work. Do you think that that is a good strategy, considering how, even though this is certainly feasible, it's doable with the industrial food chain, it doesn't seem like an okay trade-off like will we be able to actually be more productive with that amount of time that we gain back will we actually is this actually worth it like i the the thing i always think about is after those five years how obese are you going to be like if if you make all this money what's it going to be worth in the end here's here's a take how many people do you know personally that post high school and during college and then a little bit after college have put on inordinate amount of weight an inordinate amount of weight and they don't eat mcdonald's for every meal oh yeah it's a lot of people it's a i'm I'm sorry i like gary i think he has some great ideas this is my problem with gary sometimes and i'm going to make a video on the yin and yang of gary v and it's going to be a a video essay on how this guy has the best (laughs) and worst advice of all time and it's all coming from a great place but he really sometimes needs to reel in the hot takes this is a bad Mm -hmm. take I'm being censored because if I was talking to you personally, I'd tell you like 100% how I feel, but this is, this is a bad take. 
because you're talking about how obviously he's talking for hyperbole. However, he has a cult following, so people are going to take him seriously. Look at what happened to Morgan Spurlock, and that guy had was the epitome of health in Super Size Me 1. He was with a vegan, and he mostly ate vegan, and he was the definition of in the middle, good health, decent weight, salad BMI, American. Mm-hmm. Borderline doctors were saying, we are worried about your health within three weeks. <laughs> like, come on. Come on, Gary. Come on. You can't have that hot of a take and not hedge. You can't do that because someone's going to take it out of context. You can't do that when you're Gary Vaynerchuk. Yep. I absolutely agree. I mean, not only is it physiologically unsustainable, but, and he talks about this and cooked as Michael Pollan. I'll say he um, talked about this and cooked as well, but being able to omit fat, sugar, and salt, which are inevitably added into all, any kind of food you're eating out. It's not just McDonald's. The reason that eating out is so attractive is because as humans, we have these instincts to go for foods that are rich in fat, sugar, or salt, because those are what sustained us as humans and allowed us to survive, essentially. So, entertaining and like, you know, going out and eating those foods more often, this is generally going to be awful for you. And I think that when you overload yourself onto these nutrients that we don't actually need, like we are not hunter-gatherers anymore, we don't need that, but when you do it, you're only going to end up being less productive. Yeah, and I think advice is always uh, subjective and for the individual, but I would, I mean, extremely hot take, but eating less is better than eating just fast food in, in this context because the, the benefits of mental clarity regarding fasting have, actu- have actual, some, some actual like studies to show that that's fine. Eating less and maybe eating bad for like one meal a day like and living with your parents it's it, it's one of those things where he's like he's got to be contextual about this like if if you're eating honestly eat simple and eat less and mm-hmm. grind that's a good take i think that's a better take it may not be the perfect take i'm not saying i'm the epitome of what is a feasible way to to grind or whatever but like working from yeah. like five in the morning until five thirty at night then giving your nights to chill and me eating two meals a day but and I only eat meat like once a day. I very my lunch is extremely minimalist. No, my lunch is healthy, right? I eat like <laughs> a fruit bowl mixed with some um, Belvita breakfast cookies and and almond butter and honey and hemp seed. And then at dinner, it doesn't really matter what I eat because I also do a little bit of exercise every day. And basically, I haven't really gained weight. It's extremely simple, and I do grind. I work like sixty, sixty-five hour weeks just because I don't really take a day off besides one day. But like. His and he just doesn't have a sustainable. He is a freak, mm-hmm. and and he refuses to acknowledge sometimes. I think that contextually, what he was doing was hustling inside of a store, which was a manual labor job. You can't you you can't conflate this argument sometimes, which I don't get. You can't conflate the knowledge worker economy and you trying to gain a, a skill in the knowledge work environment versus him hustling in a wine store. Yep. Yeah, when you talk about knowledge work, I think that is like the biggest thing is that you just, you have to be intentional across all facets of your life if you're trying to put yourself into the best cognitive state to perform well. And food is and a so, big part. Yeah. And food, yeah, exactly. Food is a huge part. Um, but getting back to the, maybe where this book kind of intersected with productivity for me, um, getting into the whole eating seasonally thing. It wasn't a huge part of the book, but he did talk about like, the, the role of fossil fuels and the environmental cost with being able to eat, you know, an international plate of food where you can really have any food. Like, it's unreal that we're able to eat avocados in December in Illinois. Like, this isn't, that's not something that anyone in any generation has been able to say until like the past probably 20 years. But one thing that I had to do was, or I felt called to do it, was go into my notion meal planner and not categorize my foods by like entree, appetizer, dessert, but rather by seasonality. Interesting. And so I took like the, the major ingredients, or actually I tried to make it exclusive to the ingredients that were in each meal. And I said, if this meal has some ingredient that 
doesn't fit with the seasonality of Illinois, of Chicago's ecosystem, then I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to try my best to not eat that food. And I would say go to seasonalfoodguide.org. You can put in the state you're in, what month it is that you're looking for. You can kind of like see what foods are available in any month in your state. And um, super interesting. It's really just limited to fruits and vegetables, but because um, I don't know, I guess you can do meat anywhere. But um, this has been a really cool thing. I think it's a great way to to organize your life. And not only that, but diversify the foods you're eating. And I think when you eat a food at the time of the year, it's supposed to be eaten. I, I had this, I had this feeling that there's like this, this instinctual like desire to want things in their grown season. Like there's like nothing better than a barnet squash in the winter. Well, I mean, Marcus Aurelius would say living according, live in accordance with nature. And so would the majority of the Stoics and you're kind of preaching right now. That's true. I I do always hark on the live according to nature because that's such a a vague ask. But I do think that's a concrete example of living according to nature. Is living according to the seasons. You got to do that. Also, we forgot the quote of the week. Live in oh accordance with nature, Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> that is the quote of the week. That's the quote of the week, people. <laughs> You may leave this life at any moment. Marcus Aurelius. That's meditations. I just read that today. I don't know. So whatever. <laughs> um, living in accordance with nature, that one. Uh, I feel like that would have been a perfect one. I should have wrote that down. That would have been good. That actually would have been pretty solid. That actually gets into the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is um, he talks quite extensively in the second half of the book about hunting. And um, he often... He, he cites, uh, what's his name? Gasset in Cortez. Gasset y Cortez is a, uh, I believe is a Spanish philosopher. And he talks extensively. Oh no, here we go. Ortega y Gasset. Excuse me. Um, yeah, Spanish philosopher. Talks a lot about hunting. Big time hunter. And he believed that the way that you can be most connected to nature is as the hunter. Because... Your senses are heightened. You're seeing things really for how they are. You're hearing every sound in the forest, listening for the pre- the, the prey you're looking for. I think in this book he was hunting hogs, which was kind of funny. Kind of funny to think about little little piggies running around in California <laughs> forest. I'm sure they weren't. I think they were like ugly, like uh, like wild boars. Nonetheless, um. It really pitched this um, this notion of hunting to me. And I think when you, again, consider the, the four types of food chain, when you get to that hunter-gatherer food chain, it took this man ages to get a pig. And not only that, but to eventually bleed it out, skin it, cook it. It's a long process. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on hunting and if you think that this is... um. When, we, when we're talking about intentionalism, does this fit within your framework of intentionalism? Or have we moved the, have we tipped the scale too far? I think a rude way of putting this would be, this is stupid. I think a nice <laughs> way of putting this would be, to the general audience, this is going to fall on deaf ears. I don't think you should put it in the book. Um, no, not, not yeah. seriously. Like I think to the general audience... It's an interesting story, but it's going to fall on deaf ears regarding actionable steps taken from it. I think personally, if there's anything I learned from this book, and if you mix it in with my whole shtick, make enough money to where true organic food chain is where you get all your food from. I, I definitely agree with that. I think the, the the best part of this book was when he was um on that one farm. I can't remember the name of this farmer. But he's on the farm and um, they're just doing everything right. Like they're they're growing their own chickens and not giving in to pesticides or any kind of big um, agriculture schemes, essentially. And essentially this this dude is quoted like a hundred times for being like, F the industry, like F big farming. And <laughs> it, it was just crazy. He was almost like this like uh, anti-societal hippie who's like also a farmer and... These people would drive out to his farm every week. They could watch 
the chickens get killed. They could watch uh, the cows get slaughtered and the yeah. the vegetables get grown. And it's just completely transparent about how they're doing things. I do agree. I think that is the the best balance of being intentional with your food eating. Because I think if, if there's any way that you can really master, it, it, we talk about a lot of like mastering, habit building, uh, deep work even. Uh, I mean, becoming somebody who's good at this is a skill. Uh, and it is something that's going to require you to get a lot of cognitive thinking and pra- physical practice. So it's like, how can you manage that at the same time as having a life in a knowledge working economy where you can increase your wealth and improve your life on an intentional level? It's like, no, I don't think both of those things are feasible. I think either you got to be a, a straight up farmer or you got to just make enough money to then start start with going with just industrial organic food, then work your way down the, the chains. And then eventually, if you would like to, and it's your passion, then go towards hunter-gatherer food chain and just have that be your life because you have so much compounding interest from the markets. But like, I, it's not feasible with the amount of time people have. I don't, I don't see this as a viable option. And I absolutely agree. I think the, the scale gets tipped too far. And I think how you, I like how you called it a passion because... It's his passion. Clearly, he wrote a book on it, right? Well, I'm saying for the people who um, he hunted with, these kind of mentors, there's like a a couple mentors that he hunts with and then a couple when he goes um, mushroom hunting as well. And um, it's the the language is is so flow state, especially with the mushroom hunting. But it's like he gets into this zone. There's like a passage of time that just seems unreal to him. Like hours go by and he's just like trudging through the, the mud and thorns looking for a mushroom, which sounds terrible to me because I don't like mushrooms, but um, <laughs> to each their own, I guess. I will say this book kind of pitched it to me that um, mushrooms could be kind of gas if I um if I hunted them for myself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm surprised you don't like mushrooms. Yeah. That is not my jam. That is not. They taste like dirt. They come from the dirt, and that's that's kind of what they are to me. But I think you make a good point that the hunter gatherer is that that's your life. If you in a knowledge based economy, we have to divvy up these tasks to different people to have different experts in every field, and being able thinking that you can live a life where you're finding flow state both in a knowledge based job and in something on the ground in the fields type of hunting or something thinking you have energy for both is um unrealistic i think what uh, something that's good to point out is you know people always like to joke and be like well elon musk works all these crazy hours and gary v works all these crazy hours and there are these people who can do all these million things at once it's like yeah ryan holiday has a farm ryan holiday has a farm this is a good counter argument to that i mm-hmm. will always say this in the nicest way possible to people we're all not Ryan Halliday. We're all not <laughs> Gary Vaynerchuk. We're all not Elon Musk. So usually my frame of mind is I like to work under the assumption that I'm the exception to the rule. You seem to like to work under the assumption that you're the exception to the rule. However, everyone cannot be the exception to the rule because therefore that is a fallacy. Uh, then that, it's not the rule. That's not, it isn't literally not how that works because uh, <laughs> then there's no rule and then anarchy. But it's, it's just like you got to go with these reviews in that context because... I think the average person doesn't want to be the exception or maybe they want to be the exception of the role, but it's impossible for everyone to be. And I'm not doubting anybody in general. I'm doubting society in general because it's proven me right not to be rude. But if, if, if anyone has a problem with what I'm saying, I mean, that, that, uh, pay attention to one, <laughs> 2021 or 2020. Um, but like, it's a very interesting concept. I think it's great that people are informed about these things. This could really impact somebody who is a middle-class person, right? To start at least eating industrial organic that isn't aware. And then could upper middle-class could maybe even think about doing true organic food chain. To be frank, the reason that we're able to get a cow is because that we are probably upper middle-class, right? So right. there's that. And I'm acknowledging the privilege part of things. And then using it to do a both more moral and more health-based thing. So where we got to go with this kind of information, in my opinion. Yeah, um, I, I do think it's um, it's interesting that the new poor looks looks like it's it's fat because it's that's sad. Just how it is, and 
it, it's so sad. I, I do recognize the, the privilege that comes with being able to even go on any kind of diet like that. But um, speaking of exceptions to the rule, I thought one little tidbit that was really interesting in this book is just one thing that I will say is a general positive of The Omnivore's Dilemma is that Michael Pollan is a journalist and almost to the sense that he's an academic. He writes, this book took me forever to get through because it is just jocked full of facts and like receipts. Like if he's not telling the story, he is like listing out all these facts and just to ad nauseum. So you can, you can see that as a critique as well. Like in the grass section, it was like, these facts were definitely lulling me to sleep at a point because like, it's just grass. Like (laughs) who cares? The one really interesting fact that I found in the book was about mushrooms. I think part of the reason they're so divisive amongst people, like some people love mushrooms, hate mushrooms, is because when we're thinking about the the caloric system, how we count like how many energy units a certain food has, calories comes from the like photosynthesis and sun units. But because mushrooms are a fungi, they don't actually use the sun to gain their energy. They gain their oh, energy yeah. from like the roots. So they're almost like calorically null because our system doesn't account for the fact that that's not how they get their energy. And yet they still provide us food in some way. So it's very interesting how they almost work outside of that whole paradigm and rule of calories. I think I just, uh, my mind is blown. I mean, crazy, right? it makes a lot of sense from a scientific standpoint, but my brain is failing to wrap around how that works because it is food. Mm-hmm. What the heck? Yeah, it's crazy that we've made this this calorie system and just think that that's, that's scripture, even though that's not something that, that's not language people used 200 years ago, 100 years ago when they were talking about food. It's like, oh, how many calories is that? Well, like, like I've always thought about? about this in this sense. Like if someone just starts eating paper, like, you know, like weird people that <laughs> <laughs> just go like, how many calories is that? Like, <laughs> it's just so stupid. That is, that's funny. That's funny. Kids who eat but glue. Another, <laughs> kids who eat glue. Those, the, the weird kid in third grade who's eating glue. <laughs> How many calories this kid's shoving down? It's like, what? Uh, that's funny. That's funny. The, the, the answer is solved. Um, The other thing I was going to ask you is when we're thinking about striking a balance with being intentional in our food eating and still giving enough time for flow state deep work and a knowledge-based passion. How do you feel about a garden? Oh, that's cute. About, yeah. My whole family is, cute? I, here's the thing. I, my background is farmer. Like my, both of my sides that when they were in Europe, they were farmers and my grandfather, even when he was in the U S uh, was a gardener and, and had, he grew his own tomatoes still, um, even until he died. Um, he grew his own tomatoes in his backyard and my, uh, yeah, yeah. So my grandma, my Greek side still is a garden, garden, not gardens, but she has a lot of plants. And, you know, I think it's a nice, that's a fair hobby to have a few things. However, just having it be the entirety is a, is a little bit much. Like if you want to do it with everything regarding like some small stuff like tomatoes and uh, cucumbers and whatnot, that's like what my my I, I, one of my neighbors does that too and um i think someone i previously dated's dad did as well if i recall he farmed or he gardened and then a lot of my italian aunts and uncles like can their own tomato sauce and uh oh wow yeah like so i definitely i'm not uh, the thing is i am talking about a lot of people explicitly right now who don't work in knowledge working jobs so i do get a real back <laughs> of my thought because i just realized that that was a dumb argument uh, but I think it's cute. It is something that could be a fun hobby. Um, managing that is, is a nice sustainable way to get some of your basic veggies and, and, uh, toppings in. Um, but it's just, it's, I think, uh, maybe this is the way I work. If there's something I've definitely learned, it's, it's that you gotta be contextual. But for me, I think what makes more sense is doing the whole moving down that chain, moving down that chain over time. And, and as you get more time, being more intentional with your time. And I don't know, I, I think I, to a fault, sometimes have that time value argument. And I'm thinking about that for like 
the business next year or whatever, but it's like, you know, if you could spend a little bit more time on stuff that would, that would give you more money than, you know what I mean? Like if I, if I could spend a little bit more time, add more value and then conflate that, like it's hard to, it's hard to compare these two things, but like take that and, and get a little bit more intentional with how I eat due to the more money. Eh, I don't know. It's hard. I think if you have no interest in it, though, don't waste your time. Do the do the time value thing. I think I agree, but I'm gonna I'm gonna make one little kickback here and Kick. merge ideas. Kick a little kickback from two different books, both from James Clear. So in Digital Minimalism, he talks about um. He talks about the the need for I think a hobby, where he says something where you're you're being like tactile, you're using your hands and doing something I I don't remember exactly what it was but I remember I walked away from this book yeah. thinking like this guy definitely like makes decks in his free time like wooden decks and then in deep work when we're talking about the hitting the reset button for your conscious brain and taking up some kind of unconscious activity when we're hitting the reset button would not gardening some kind of physical all right tactile, all right all right this is a fair point you know what this I'm is saying? a fair point it's a good all point right. all right I see. Not a, it's not a bad hobby. I mean, obviously you gotta like it. Obviously, this has to be your jam. But I think it's actually kind of cute. I think it brings us back to our roots. Hey, stop, <laughs> stop. And uh, I think if you are interested in whatsoever, do this over building decks because we don't want our kids falling on the decks you guys make. Like, let's just keep people out of the hospitals <laughs> from whatever you guys are doing. That was a joke for people in the future who want to cancel me. That was a joke. No, I, I think it's good. I think it's um, yeah. It, it seems like one of the better uses of both your time, and it's also gonna. I mean, it's, it's a little bit personal finance. It saves a little bit of money here. Yeah, and I, I, I would, will, I will make one great thing. It is really nice to be outside, get the vitamin D, get your feet in accordance with nature, connect with nature. I think that that whole shtick is actually something I definitely believe in. And it's been something I've lacked a little bit, definitely, since I've been living at home and running less. Uh, so I do feel that you made a good point, and that if you're relatively interested in, in it, give it a try, because chance ain't wrong. Any arguments against, not against this book, or just any, what are, what are your issues with this book? We got we to gotta say that before we give our ratings. General critiques, I think the... I hit a real roadblock reading this book. I really had to channel. Uh, I was watching another video from Captain Sinbad, and I actually thought back to this book the other day because he was like, "Don't have shame in not reading the entire book." If there's a part of the book that is just lulling you to sleep, and you don't think you're actually going to get much gain out of reading that section of the book, don't do it. And that is exactly how I felt with the grass section of this book. And I'm, my roommate now is also reading it. I lent the book to him, and. He's, he just hit the grass section. He's like, I can't do this, man. Like, <laughs> this is just miserable. Because it, it kind of is. It's a lot of facts. And although grass is what should be the fundamental, like, kind of backbone for American agriculture, because that's what the only animals can eat it. Humans can't eat it. FYI. If you're, if you're human, and I don't know if you knew that, but you can't eat grass. Good animals enough. can good to know so i thought it was really interesting i understand why he had to make that point because you're transitioning from where we have failed which is by making corn the backbone of american agriculture instead of grass i understand why you have to make that transition but man you it was probably the longest section in the book <laughs> it was dense and it's just like i just can't talk about grass for that long i just couldn't yeah Okay, I, I respect that. That's a very, that's a pretty bad part of the book. Uh, but here's my thing. You're right, and Captain Sidbad, that's a good nugget. I use that when I was, I'm reading meditations, and I got halfway through the introduction where I learned about a lot of the historical about Marcus, and then uh, he starts referring to like, well, you got to understand that meditations is like a hodgepodge of things, and in this chapter, he talks about this, and in this chapter, and I realized there's about 20 pages where this guy just summarizes parts of meditations and references as how some things contradict each other. I'm like, I could figure this out by reading the dang thing. What am I doing? I'm not going to, I looked at my <laughs> estimated remaining time on my Kindle and was like, I'm not wasting 30 minutes on this. This is stupid. And 
that tip, by the way, saved me a lot of time this morning. So thank you for that uh, reference <laughs> to Captain Sinbad. Uh, and I, I would say my biggest critique to this is um, know your audience. Uh, the, the, the audience will never be as 100% interested in the subject as the writer, in my opinion. And maybe it's okay to niche down. I know this is a successful book, but the grass section probably didn't hit with many people. As well mm-hmm. as, you know, it was interesting to bring up the stuff about the the hunter gatherer, but don't make an argument for it because, let's be honest, like not everyone's gonna, most people aren't gonna do that. Actually, like point zero five percent of the book readers are gonna do that. So chill, right? Exactly, and I think th- this is a positive and negative. But he does, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, he lays out the four types of the food chains: industrial, industrial organic, true organic, hunter gatherer, and then he makes these four meals, which are supposed to be the industrial meal. The natural, organic, yeah. and then I, I don't remember the name of the last one. Like entirely done by him. Like he made a meal where he like he did everything himself. I think he like found salt. Like he found like a salt mine and like chipped <laughs> away his own salt. Even like it was pretty intense. Yeah, if you remember that part of the book. But um, another thing I didn't really like is how little he tied in the meal with the first and the last meal. It was very clear that what he was doing, he was eating a McDonald's meal, which is like, this is where the industrial economy has led us. And then he had the the meal that he made entirely by himself where he like killed a pig and found mushrooms. And and like I said, he he found salt. Like that's just such an odd thing. But the two meals in the middle where it was the the grass and um, I don't even remember the other part, which probably speaks to how much I like the book. I think it was a corn based meal also, but um. I didn't really feel a strong connection to the to the second title of the book, which is four meals. Like, yeah, people got to cut know. it with the two two title things. And they got to stop this. Yeah, yeah, the second title thing. We keep talking about it, but like one title or the other, pick. And it was the first title. It was entirely about the first title. Yeah, very fair. Um, Good negative. Yeah, this wasn't neatly. It wasn't neatly tied together. I guess is all I'm trying to say there. Fair enough. So what are you? What are you giving it on the uh, the ratings scale? When we wrote it down, I said um, I said eight point seven five. But now that we've been running it through the through the the tests here, I, I think I'm actually going to give it a. Uh, I'm going to give it an eight, a flat eight, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah, I, I appended I appended I'm yours and I'm appending there. mine. I'm giving it a seven point two five uh, instead of a seven point five. So we got So it's gonna land us at a uh, seven point six two five. So this thing yes. got knocked down a bit just now. Um sorry, but still above digital minimalism though. Yeah, well digital minimalism, we really did kind of crap a whole lot in that book. I think we'll have to go through and and maybe I don't know a year from now, and there will be a revision. See which of these books, yeah, there should be revision because I think digital minimalism. I just referenced it here in this podcast. I think that speaks some merit. I think we drop references to the four-hour work week pretty often, at least when it comes to reading before bed, pretty often. So maybe that deserves more than just a seven. Yeah, I will say this. You know, we there's a there's a guy named uh really quick cosmonaut variety hour he's a youtuber who does movie reviews he goes back and looks at his original movie reviews and laughs and it's like dude what was i on like when i when he gave reviews at the time every every uh there's a there's a not a paradox but there's a problem people acknowledge how much they change over time but they mm-hmm. refuse to be able to understand at the moment how much they will change so when this comes to our reviews we are going to stand by these numbers very vehemently at the current moment, but then we're going to be like, dude, what the heck later for that same reason, but with our opinions and how they change. So uh, we, we will definitely have to do a revisal, but I I am hard pressed to, I will n- probably not change my top two, but I'm falling into my, into the fallacy right now. So <laughs> that, that's an interesting fallacy. I've never actually heard about that, but that, that makes a lot of sense. It's like you can, um, it, it's almost like when you're within a car, you don't feel like you're going that fast, but when you're at the side of the highway and you see a car zoom by, it's like, well, that, that's clearly, 
moving very quickly. It's like you're not able to observe yourself in the moment, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but from an outside perspective, thinking back about how things were and how you behaved, it's quite clear how reality was. Uh, I would have never been able to tell you that I would have been able to get out of the mind space of playing video games, like all, at least a little bit in my life, but now I just don't. Exactly. So. Any, uh, it's all retroactive. Yeah, exactly. Any uh, final thoughts before we wrap things up? Um, I mean, I, I still like it. Good book. It definitely got knocked down a peg or two here as we, we kind of hash some of these things out. But um, I still like it. it. To me, it was quite impactful in terms of how I'm going to try to consume food in my life. And I thought it'd be a, a nice little change of pace here at the Rice Productive Podcast. We've talked a lot about uh, some different productivity books. I snuck one uh, philosophy book into there. Or actually, no, we, we got two philosophy books in there. That's good. But I thought that we'd just um, toss in something that's a little philosophical, little productive, mostly health conscious. I'm proud to say that we hit seven reviews in seven months that we've been together on this podcast, seven-ish, eight. So we are going, I, this, give, this month gave me confidence that we're going to keep the rate up. So that's my, my final stick. We're going to hopefully keep about one book a month. And I think you and I should sit down in a few weeks and flesh out some more uh, planning on what books we would like to read next year. Absolutely. That sounds like a good plan, sir. And with that, thank you for listening to episode 76 of the Rise Productive Podcast. And we will see you in the next one. Bye. Bye.